Morning, everybody. Good to see you this morning. It's great, uh, great to be here. So uh, I uh, came into this community about six months ago. Some of you maybe were here uh, a few months ago, and Brent uh, graciously <laughs> helped me tell my story, and uh, kind of we did a bit of an interview. So maybe if you hadn't ever watched that or seen that on the podcast, all of our uh, all of our messages are are put online and put on podcasts. You can kind of go back and catch up on that. But it has been uh, such a blessing. When I moved to uh, moved to, back to Tulsa, and this is somewhat of a home, even though I grew up in Canada, this has been home for me in Tulsa for 20 plus years over the last 25 or 30 years. So when I uh, moved back here, because I've got family here and uh, my boys live in Dallas, so I'm close to my boys, I'd moved from Chicago uh, after spending a year in Chicago working with a, a church there. I called one of my best friends who had really, really especially been close to me the last three years as I've been walking through uh, uh, kind of a new new beginning in my life. And I, I said, you know, I'm going back to Tulsa and I really want to be in a, a community, a, a church that I can know people and be known and and uh, he said, you need to go to sanctuary and uh, showed up here and just didn't want to leave. And uh, Brent and Janice and Ed and Gail and the staff and the team and so many of you have been so wonderful in my life. And uh, I'm slowly talking all of my family to come. My mom and dad come here now, my sister and and uh, or sister-in-law and several friends. So it is just great to be in this community. And um, I appreciate the love and uh, the grace that I've uh, felt since I've been here. So I uh, wanted to just tell you a quick story before we get in the message. And I'm not going to preach long. Uh, that's one of the reasons I love this church is messages don't go very long. They're like maybe, I don't know, they're not very long. They never seem long. And so uh, I'm just going to ask you for a little bit of time. How many will give me like 15 minutes? Can you, would you, if you raise your hand, 15 minutes, 15, 30, 45, 60. All right. So that's all I need is, is about 60, 75 minutes. Uh, but one of the things I've, I've uh, kind of figured out in this community is how many different things we're involved with, how many different missions and outreaches and people that we're helping. And it seems like every week I learn about something new that either we're doing or that we've done, and it really gets me excited. So we just got a report back this last uh, uh, week or two from a... Uh, uh, a contribution and a, and a giving uh, initiative that we did for some missionary friends of ours in Guatemala. And so these friends had a community of about 600 people, including a, a school uh, full of uh, school children, that uh, their well had got polluted and contaminated. So the, the community well uh, was filled with pollutants. And, uh, you know, it's one of the things I know for me, I kind of take for granted in today's uh, world and in, in my American world is, you know, we've got pure water all the time. We're never concerned about disease in our water. It's, it's so nice. It's so great to have water. Well, this was not the case in this, uh, in this little town in Guatemala. So these missionaries asked us as a church, if we would support, if we would help to cover the cost of digging that well and finding uh, pure water and bringing it up so that uh, those, those people could be free of disease. So we came to you, you responded lovingly, graciously. We sent the resources to Guatemala and we just got a report back. So they've dug the well, mission accomplished. They had to go hundred feet down, water's coming up, 60 pure gallons of water every minute, every minute. That's good news. Amen. And uh, that's uh, 
that's 454 of these a minute. So that's, that's a lot of water. And we just wanted to applaud you and say thank you for supporting and helping us to make a difference in another part of our world. Praise God. So I uh, want to talk to you this morning uh, about a story. And it's my favorite story. It's been a absolute transformational story in my life. You've all heard this story if you've grown up in church because it is uh, without question probably uh, Christ's most powerful story. It's probably the most well-liked story that he told. Uh, People everywhere talk about it. They paint this story. They write about it. They put it into movie scripts. It's a powerful story. We're going to talk about the story of the prodigal son. And really, it's a story about rebellion and religion. And uh, so many of us, we have grown up in religion. I grew up in a religious world in Canada, even though I didn't really get born again and come to Christ until I was 16. I grew up in a, in a, in a church world. And a lot of you have probably grown up in a religious world. Uh, Tulsa is a very religious city. There may be others of you that more recently, uh, you've come to Christ and maybe you didn't grow up in, in a Christian experience. And there may be some of you here this morning that because we get this at Sanctuary a lot, that are, are kind of coming to explore. Maybe you didn't grow up in a very religious or Christian world. And so you've maybe heard about this church, that it's a safe place to come and explore your faith and, and determine kind of what you believe and what you think about God. And we're always inviting people to come and uh, participate in that. And so, uh, and, and for those that, Matt, you just came in today and you know nothing about God, nothing about religion, let me just give you a quick lesson. This will help you. So the Jewish people do not recognize Christ as the Messiah. Okay, so that's number one. Uh, Second, Protestants do not recognize the Pope as the leader of the church. And then Baptists do not recognize each other at Hooters. So if you can remember (laughs) those three things, uh, you'll kind of have religion figured out. Now, listen, if you're Baptist, please forgive me. I could have inserted any denomination I wanted in there. Not trying to pick on the Baptists. So, you know, if you kind of grew up in Christianity, which I did for many, many years, uh, maybe at some point uh, you've noticed that there are some stereotypes about Christians in America. There are some people that really don't like the church that they see the church in America as an enemy. And and many of them are obviously outsiders from the church. And for whatever reason, they point their fingers at us and they think maybe we're hypocritical or we're judgmental or we're harsh. And, and, And I think one of the things that any Christian that really wants to make a difference in our culture and our community wants to do is try to change that stereotype. And I'm hoping to do that a little bit this morning. You know, I got on Google yesterday and, uh, you know, Google's so awesome. You know, we have lost wonder in America. I mean, there used to be, you know, if you turn to your buddy and say, hey, you know, Tom Cruise, he looks kind of short. I wonder how tall he is. It used to be we would live in wonder for years. We'd never know how, how tall Tom Cruise really was. Now it's like two seconds. We get on our eye telephone. I'm old school. And uh, we, we can find out how tall Tom is or where Tom Petty was born. And, but Google, Google loves to give us information. And so I, I Googled yesterday, put this up, Steve, and I Googled this. And uh, I Googled, why are Christians so, 
and then I just put in a letter. And Google, they, Google likes to tell you what you're thinking. Like Google wants to predict what you're searching for. Google's always trying to help us. And so I, I typed in you and Google will usually give you four results of what you might be looking for. And these results are based on what other people have Googled the most, all right? So there's a science to this. Google doesn't just create stuff. It kind of figures out what most people Google when they type this in, and it gives you four, predi- four predictions. And so this is what you came up with. Why are Christians so uptight? Why are Christians so unhappy? Why are Christians so uneducated? And why are Christians so unlike Christ? Wow. Really? That's what people are Googling when they think about Christians. And so I got really curious and I went and I went to all the other letters of the, every one of them, M, Z, S, R, D, and three out of four at least on every search were in the negative and not in the positive. And I just kind of think that shouldn't be the case. And I thought about the early church. I thought about the impact of the first and second century church and thought about all the influence that they carried in Rome and beyond as they went and shared this message of Christ. And, and maybe you've heard and you've heard the stories of how the early Christians were, were martyred. And I, I wondered about the martyrdom of the early Christians. I thought, why are these Christians being killed? Are they like out there with protest signs and we're against Rome? You know, we hate Caesar. You know, we don't like the laws. There's too much of this. I wondered why were they being martyred? And, and to my amazement, it had nothing to do with that. They were martyred simply for believing in Christ, simply for loving Christ unto death. You see, the Romans had a pantheon of gods. They had multiple, literally hundreds of gods. And they thought that the Christians were atheists. They were literally called atheists because they only believed in one God. And they felt like the Christians, because they didn't believe in all these other Roman gods, that somehow the Roman gods were going to bring calamity and tragedy on the people of Rome. And so they would consistently throw Christians to lions. They would chop their head off. They would burn them at the stake. They would kill them. But they were good people. In fact, the turn of the third century, the laws completely changed. And you know why? Because there was an uprising among the common people that said, we can't keep killing Christians. They are kind. Letters were written to the governors. They are good people. They love their families. They love their children. They're the hardest workers in our community. They rise early. They stay late. These are good people. We've got to stop murdering and killing the best among us. And they totally shifted the culture. Why? Because of the goodness of God that was represented in the church. And I long for that day. I know you do too. And as we see this story of the prodigal, and I want to just kind of put up a, a painting because this, uh, this painting and this story so affected me uh, in the last three years. I went through a, uh, a really dark and difficult time three years ago. And for those that heard my story, some of you remember kind of, and I'll, I don't want to retell it all, but, but I'd been in ministry for 20 plus years and and somehow along the line, uh, I allowed an addiction in my life, and I allowed myself to, to get in bondage to, to lust and to pornography, which resulted in a lot of really bad decisions in my life. 
And one of the questions that I've uh, answered a lot, one of the questions I've been asked a lot is, Blaine, over 20 years of slowly kind of moving into this, this life, this secret life, this addiction in your life, why didn't you seek out help? And that's a great question. And honestly, when I look back today, I wish I would have. I realized today that I could have. I realized that there were safe places and safe churches and safe people that I could have got help from. But I didn't. And to answer you truthfully, the reason I didn't is because I didn't trust the church. I just simply didn't trust the church, at least the church world that I was in at that time. Because I'd seen so many people that had entrusted their lives with ministers or churches or Christian people and just been devastated that they lost everything. They lost their family. They lost their their career, their ministry. And, And it just seemed like everything always resulted in punishment and tragedy. And I just said, you know what? I don't want that for my kids. I don't want that for my family. I don't want to go through that. And so here was, here was what I would do. I would just say, God, somehow you've got to help me. And I would go through these repentance cycles of you know, committing this sin and realizing how wrong it was and hating myself and hating what I'd done. And, I'd, and I'd, I'd cry out to God and I'd fast longer and I'd pray more and I'd listen to more tapes and I'd read more books and I'd cry out to God and I'd feel a sense of, of love and mercy in my life. And, and it would last for a certain period of time, but then I'd fall again. And this cycle would just continue again and again and again. And today I know what I should have done. Today I know I should have embraced community. Today I know I should have reached out to people. I should have understood the scripture that if we confess our faults one to another, pray for one another, that there will be healing. And the devil loves to lie to us and tell us that we can make it on our own. We don't need the church. We don't need one another. We can find a way to do it. As independent American Christians, Christians, we don't need help. And that's the lie I believe. And that lie destroyed me. And so when I began to come back really to faith, because I'd lost faith in God. I remember when I met with uh, one of my best friends and a trustee in my church, as I told him and confessed my sin and I resigned my church, he said, Blaine, well, we want to get you on a restoration path. We want to help to restore you back into your soul and your ministry and what God's got for you in the church. And I said, I don't want to be back in the church. I didn't feel like I deserved the church. That was the last thing I wanted. And so I kind of had my arms up at distance to the church. I just, I felt like the church was part of my problem. And that lasted for a number of months, in fact, probably six to nine months until God began to reveal himself again to me in such a powerful way. And one of the ways he did was through this story of the prodigal son. And this is uh, Rembrandt's take on this story. Rembrandt was a, a believer, of course, a great painter, and he actually painted this at the very end of his life. You can see the father with his arms around the son that has come home. You can see the elder brother standing there with a little bit of judgment and others kind of behind that maybe part of the house or part of the community, and you see this painting. And, and Rembrandt actually painted this in a time where he was lost. He had uh, gone through a sexual scandal. He had uh, lost three of his children to death in the first two months of their lives. He had uh, literally gone bankrupt and had to sell every painting he had for just a pittance and had really lost everything. And so this painting was personal to him. He was the prodigal 
in this painting reaching out to a loving father. And it's interesting as you uh, go a little bit closer and you see that the hands of the father, you can see the, the hand on the left is a bit smaller. He painted that hand a little bit smaller. It, it's also got, it, it's almost got a little bit of a feminine quality to it. And then the hand on this side is, is a little bit of a larger hand and a stronger hand, more of a man's hand. And it's almost like he's saying that God, our father, has this amazing ability to be our strength and our power and bring truth, but he's also got this incredible love and tenderness and mercy. In fact, there's a great writer and author. Some of you maybe have heard of him. His, his name is Henry Nouwen. And, and Henry was a philosopher and taught at Harvard University for a number of years. And one day he was just kind of provoked in his soul to reach out to God. And he actually traveled all the way from Harvard to St. Petersburg to look at this painting in a museum. And he got to this painting and he was so overwhelmed by it as he, as he looked at the painting and studied each and every part of it and then read the, the, the passage out of, out of Luke that it, it, he was there like three hours and it changed his life. He came back and he resigned his position at Harvard. He moved to Toronto, Canada, and he became a worker that worked with handicapped children the rest of his life. He said, I want to give my life to hurting families, to broken people. There's something about this story that if we allow it in, if we kind of find ourselves in the story, it will change us. Jesus started this story really on the third volley of three parables. There were religious leaders that had come to him, Pharisees and Sadducees and a bunch of C's that couldn't see. And they said, uh, Jesus, this guy, he's hanging around sinners. <clears throat> he's kind of hanging, hanging out with bad people. And we don't really like it. We don't think he's that religious because of the crowd he hangs out. They called him a partier, a wine-bibber, you know, and drunkard. And uh, so Jesus responded to the fact that he fraternized with sinners. And he talked about human lostness. He talked about the lostness of the soul, that this was the reason that he came, that he came for the sick and the hurting and those that were in the worst pain, for those that needed a hospital. And he went into the parable of the, the sheep and the lost sheep, how you'd leave the 99, get one, bring them back. And then he went into the parable of the lost coin. And if you lose a coin, if you lose money, you scour the house, find it, bring it back. And then he finally got to the most powerful of all three because it speaks to one of the most powerful human relationships, a father-son relationship that has been broken. And he begins to talk about this prodigal son. And it reads in Luke chapter 15, verse number 11, it says, Jesus continued and said, there was a man that had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me your share or my share of the estate. And so he divided the property between them. We just kind of read that. But you know what? This is a big deal. Like he was basically going to his dad and saying, dad, I really wish that you were dead. And I really don't have the time to wait for you to die. So if we could speed up this process of your death without you dying, why don't you just give me my share of the estate now? And basically he's saying, you're dead to me. I really don't care about our relationship. I don't respect you. I don't love you. Wish you were dead. So just give me my stuff. And amazingly, this father did it. Now, most of you fathers would not have answered that way to your son. You would have just, you know, given him a good 
old-fashioned butt kicking and sent him on his way. But this father liquidated a third of his estate because in that day, the older son would get two-thirds of the estate. The younger third would get a third. And so my father's here today. Just a reminder, older son gets more. Okay, so that was the day and that was the custom. And, and so he gets a third of this estate and his son goes on his way. And you can just imagine what the older brother was thinking. He's saying, are you kidding me? Are you kidding, Joey? You're taking off with your, you, and then you're leaving me with all the work. I mean, you can just imagine the older brother was ticked and the father couldn't be that pleased, but he left. And then look what happens. Verse number 13, it says, not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. He got wild. You ever seen the advertisements for Girls Gone Wild? Come on, I know we're in church this morning. He got wild. Who knows what it was? But he was crazy. He was like drinking and doing drugs and probably having sex with with a lot of women and and showing up at parties and, and doing lines of coke. And I mean, this guy was wild, wild living. And it says after he had spent everything. Now he had a lot of money. I mean, he had a, who knows what he started with? Maybe he started with like 100,000 shekels or $100,000. And then, you know, his account was just slowly dwindling down to 75, 50,000, and 20,000, and 10,000. But he went through it all. This guy partied. He went crazy. And it said after all that happened, there was this severe famine. So there's this whole economic downturn in the country. You know, housing market's going in the tank and gas prices are going up and stuff is expensive and there's not very many good jobs. And so there's this whole famine that begins to hit. And it says, so he began to be in need. And so the kid got desperate. So he went out and hired himself to a citizen of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. Now, this is not what Jewish young men were meant to do. Jewish people had an aversion to pork and to pigs. And here's this guy now feeding and taking care of the pigs. And not just that, but it says he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. And no one gave him anything. He was just wishing he could eat what the pigs were eating. He was just hoping to have one of their meals, but he didn't even get that. So this kid had lost it all. I mean, he had sold his iPhone. He had put his stuff on Craigslist. He got rid of his car. I mean, he had literally just the clothes on his back. And isn't that what happens with sin? It takes a while sometimes but sin will run its course. Its wages are death. Not always immediate physical death, but things will die in our lives when we continually give ourselves over to sin. We'll have death of relationships. We'll suffer financial death and tragedy. More than anything, we have this death of relationship with God, this separation and this distance from God that comes. And that's why we celebrate the table. I mean, that's why each and every weekend we come to this table and we remember what our sins cost our father in sending us his son. That the blood and the body were given and broken 
for our sins. Yes, the wages of sin are death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That through Christ, there is hope, there is eternal life, there is a new way of living and thinking. And look what happened to this young man. Verse 17, it says, he came to his senses and he said, how many of my father's hired hands have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. He remembered the house. He remembered the place. He remembered this this place that he'd been at one time. As he recalled it, he said, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. He came to his senses and he said, I am going home. And he was going home, not with any demands, not I want that because when you've been overcome with sin and you realize what you've done, you're not in a place to make demands. You're just in a place where God, I need mercy. I need your help. And he ran back home just saying, I can just be in the house. I don't need to be a son. I don't need any adornment. I don't need any stuff. I would just be so happy to serve my father again. And I love this part of the scripture. This is my favorite verse. The end of verse 20, it says, and while the son was still a long ways off, we don't know how far, but he's still a long ways off from the, the, the farm. It says, the father saw him and was filled with compassion for him and ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. A long ways off. What does that tell us? It tells us that the father was longing and waiting at the fence. He came out every day just looking, wondering if his son would return. Days and months, maybe years after, still looking for the return of his son. And as he sees his son in the distance, the scripture says that the father didn't just wait for him to show up and then have a checklist of what did you do and how much money did you bring home? He ran to his son, embraced him, hugged him, and just began to kiss him in love. And this is so amazing because in that day, men would wear robes. Now, we all know what a robe is, right? A robe is a man dress, all right? So it's a dress. You know, we call it a robe, but that's a man dress. And so the robes all went down real, real low. And and men in that culture, Middle Eastern culture that wore robes, they did not run. It was uncouth. It was uncool, uncultural to run in a robe. Because you ladies know if you've got a tight robe, it's going to... Hard to run, you know? And you know what you gotta do? You gotta pull that sucker up, you know, so you can run and it looks bad. Looks uncool, but this father didn't care. Just yanked his robe and just went running to his son and just embraced him and loved on his son. And this is a picture of the father when we come to him and we return to him and we say, God, we've been so distant. I wanna come home. He's waiting with arms of love. And this part of the story blew the Jewish people that were listening away, especially the Pharisees and the Sadducees, all the religious elite, because this was not the custom of the day. The custom of the day 
was this. In fact, Kenneth Bailey, author of The Cross and the Prodigal, explains this so well in his book. The custom of the day in Jewish times was to have a ceremony for a son that had come back from the Gentiles that had left their family and left their faith and come back from the Gentiles and returned to the home. They would have this ceremony called the Kazaza. And the Kazaza went like this, that if that son ever dared to show his face again, and tried to come back to the house, this family would grab a large bowl, a clay pot, if you will. They would hold it up like this, and then they would smash it, breaking it into stones. And as this bowl would break in all of its different pieces, the symbolism was easy to see. Son, you have broken relationship with God. You have broken relationship with us. You are dead to us. You are useful. You were once a useful vessel, but now you have nothing to offer this family and this community. You are dead. Go and never return. That was the custom of the day. In fact, there was a, a number of parables that were told even before Jesus came on the scene, uh, rabbinical parables. And, and there was one parable that was almost identical to this prodigal son parable. In fact, it had the same characters. It had the father, the religious son, the elder son. It had the the, uh, prodigal son. It told the same story of the son taking his inheritance, going away to a far country, coming back with the exception of the ending. And at the ending of this rabbinical parable, the father would come out and say, no, I'll never take you back. You died to me when you left. You have uh, uh, shamed our family and you will leave and never come back. And it says that the village and the people commended the father. That was the ending of a real parable in that day. So Jesus, when he concluded this parable and had a father running and loving and reaching and kissing and hugging a lost son, it blew the minds of the people listening because they were not expecting that. They had a different design on the ending. How many have ever heard of a, of a movie director, uh, M. Night Shalomon? He's an Indian movie director. How many have ever heard of the movie Signs or Unbreakable or The Village or uh, Sixth Sense? Well, he directed and wrote all of those movies. And what do all of those movies have in common if you've seen any of them? They have an amazing, wicked, crazy ending. You're just watching and you're watching and you're watching and, you're, and then all of a sudden the ending hits and you're, oh, oh, I can't believe that. I didn't know the village wasn't late 18th century. It's modern. I didn't realize, you know, that that was going to happen. And you're like, ah, and you're calling your friends. Did you see the end of that movie? It's amazing, you know, and you just freaked out. Well, that's what Jesus, what Jesus was like, the M. Night Shyamalan of the prodigal story. They were freaking out. This is how it ends, really? Yes, this is how it ends. Father loves his son. And we know the story. Grabs his son, he says, we're gonna throw a party, we're gonna get shoes on you, got a robe, got a ring, symbol of covenant, authority, you're back. You're not just a slave, you're in the family, come back. They throw this party, they kill the fatted calf. I mean, this is good, good stuff. I mean, music's playing, barbecue, waft, smelling through the house. Elder brother shows up and says, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, wait, what's going on here? What's, what's happening? Well, they're throwing this party for your, your brother. He came back. Oh, wait, wait, he came back. And they're throwing a party. Yeah, they killed the big cow and all this stuff and music. And he goes to his dad says, what in the world are you doing? How could you possibly treat this kid this way? Your son wouldn't even call him his brother. 
How could you treat him like, how could you embrace him? How could you lower your standards to this young man? His father looked at the elder brother and said, listen, he was lost and he's found. He's back. And he said, I love you. I've never stopped loving you. I've always cared for you. Everything in this family is yours. You still have your inheritance. I haven't taken anything away. You want any animal on this property, it's yours and we'll party for you. Even when the elder brother and his pride, his arrogance and his judgment embarrassed his father in front of his servants, his father still loved him. This is an amazing father. As we read this story, we can find ourselves in different places and different characters. Maybe you feel like, man, I'm the prodigal. I'm a little bit lost right now. Or maybe you're the father and maybe you feel like you've had a father's heart for people and a father's love for those that have been hurting and those that have been lost. Or maybe you feel a little bit like the elder brother, that there's been a bit of harshness or judgment towards others in your life. But if you're like me, you've probably felt like you've been all three of those characters at different times in your life. I know I've felt the prodigal and the need for love. I've been the elder brother who's judged and been harsh. And there have been times, by God's grace, that I've been able to be a loving father to those that needed God's goodness. St. Ambrose, one of our church fathers, first century, wrote a commentary on this parable. And he said, you know, the faraway country is the world, but the father's house is the church. And it should be a place where prodigals party that prodigals ought to find a party waiting for them when they return. And I believe that. There's something to celebrate when people come home and when people come back. And when the church is known for its celebration and its parties for those that have been lost and refound, I think more people will reach out to this thing called the church. Close with this, I have a friend that I got to know many, many years ago. I haven't seen him for a while, but I interviewed him on a, on a TV show that we were doing at the time, and his name is Tony Campola, and Tony's a great author, a great speaker, and he's, he's uh, been an incredible forerunner in the issues of justice and reaching out to the poor, especially in Philadelphia. And Tony was speaking in another time zone far away. I don't even know which one it was, but he was, it was a long ways from the United States, and, and so he's in this other time zone. He'd spoken one night, and he was wide awake, he could not get to sleep. It was after midnight. He decided, well, I'm going to go down and, you know, walk out the hotel and see if there's a, a 24-hour restaurant somewhere. And he walks out, and the only thing he could find was a donut shop. So he walks into this donut shop. He gets a couple donuts, and he sits down to have something to eat. And, and as he's eating, in walk the women of the night. Hookers. For those who don't know what women of the night are. And so these, these ladies walk in, and, and they're loud, and they're kind of boisterous, and, and one of them is named Agnes, and Agnes comes in, and she, she starts, you know, going off, ah, it's my birthday tomorrow. And the other woman that was with her said, well, what do you expect me to do, buy you a cake? She said, no, I don't want you buying me a cake. I don't need anything. I've never had a birthday party in my life, and I don't want to start now. Well, don't worry, I wasn't going to get you a cake anyways. And they're arguing and going. And so they come in and they do their thing. They get their end of the night food and walk out the door. And Tony looks at the owner and says, do those girls come in every night? She, he said, yeah, every night about 2, 
2.30 in the morning. They end their shift and they come in and get something to eat and go home. And he looked at the owner and said, we're throwing a party for her tomorrow night. We're going to have a birthday party for Agnes. We're going to get banners and balloons and we're going to get a cake and we're going to put candles on that and we're going to give her a card and we're going to have a party for Agnes tomorrow night. And he said, well, no, we're not. He said, yes, we are. He said, I'm paying for it. You don't worry about it. It'll bring business into your store. You tell all of her friends. Don't tell her, but tell all of her friends. Tell everyone in this community we're having a party. And so Tony showed up there the next night after he got done preaching, set the whole thing up. They put streamers, balloons, cake, card, everything, and in walks Agnes at about 2.30 in the morning. And as she walks in, there's about 20 to 25 friends and Tony and the, and the owner singing happy birthday. And she just begins to weep. She just uncontrollably begins to sob. And they give her her candle and she's just looking at it, crying and And they said, well, Agnes, let us cut it so we can have some cake. And she said, oh, no, you cannot cut this cake. I want to take it home. I just want to keep looking at it. And she just walked out the door with her stuff and walked down the street with her little cake and took it home. And Tony said, after after she left, he said, he said, let's gather together. We're going to pray for Agnes. And he led in a prayer. and, And the owner, after the prayer, said, are, are you a He said, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm actually a, a, a pastor. And he said, really? Well, the owner said, what kind of church do you go to? And Tony said, I go to the kind of church that has parties for prostitutes at 2.30 in the morning. And the owner said, oh, no, there's not a church like that anywhere. Because if there was, I would go to that church. We need to get good at parties. We need to find the lost among us and throw parties. You know, when I came back to the Lord and I began to renew my heart and my soul, I met a few older brothers along the way. There will always be older brothers in our lives where we feel some sense of judgment. But you know what? I've had a lot more parties than I've had older brothers I've had family members and friends and people that cared and churches and places like this community who've thrown parties. And there's something that happens in a lost person's soul when we celebrate their return. It says the goodness of God leads us to repentance. When we experience that goodness, there's a desire to get closer and closer and closer to our Father. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time today. And I just close with this prayer. If there's anyone in this place that feels a little bit undone, a little bit lost, off-center, pray that you would let them know that this is a safe place, a safe community, for them to find you and that we would be the hands of the Father to them, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.